0: one, action. You must be wondering where your host is. But let's be real, none of us care about him. This is no time. I don't know what just happened. <laughs> you know what? millions of people are tuning in. to see my face. This is a conversation with Surya Karki, an entrepreneur, educator, and leader. He is the co-founder and country director of United World Schools Nepal and has built over 70 schools in Nepal over the past eight years. He's listed in the Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2017. In this conversation, they talk about Surya's journey growing up in Nepal, all the struggles and challenges he faced, as well as the journey that's brought him into becoming an education entrepreneur and bringing about education parity in Nepal. They also discuss leadership and what it takes for Nepal to move from the current situation into the future, a one filled with hope and dreams, as Surya will come to tell you. Welcome. You are watching... It's no time. No time. If you like what you see. You can subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify, or rate 5 stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want to continue supporting us. You can make a donation on Patreon, Anchor, or Instagram. Additionally, you can share these episodes, leave your likes and comments, all forms of engagement, they really go a long way. For other kinds of love and support. You can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter. Or follow me personally. It's no time. no time. No time. For my first question, let's get into a time capsule and go back to the year 1990. Take me back to your childhood, growing up in Sankhu Wasaba, growing up in your village. What was daily life like for you in the village? What were some of the challenges you faced? And what are some of the memories that stand out to you, both the good memories and the difficult ones?
1: I mm. was um, born in uh, the eastern part of Nepal, uh, district called Sankhuwasabha, and mm-hmm. my village would specifically be Chiraite, which is uh, a, I would say approximately eighteen to nineteen hours bus ride back then. Okay. Or now it would be thirty-five minute flight and another three hour approximately drive to my home. Um, I was born to a single mother um, in a very, I would say decently poor family (laughs) because poverty was everywhere. So I I wouldn't necessarily say my, my family was the poorest because we came from a family that had abundant land that we could farm. But my mom uh, was uh, separated from my uh, in-laws or her in-laws family because um, her husband was not around. And so um, she was separated, pushed out uh, of the main family and, uh, I was born in the separated house, which is, uh, which was approximately around 30 to 45 minutes walk from the main house. Um, yeah. So being born into a, uh, rather, you know, isolated house in a, you know, poor family to a single mother meant a lot of things were very different uh, for me, for my mom and eventually my sister and my younger brother. Um. Now, I think life back then was uh, filled with a lot of interesting prospects. I would say, Uh, you know, being born into a family in a rural area meant, uh, you know, you only dreamt of a certain limited uh, kind of professions. And as a kid, um, you know, we were directly plunged into farming. That was the first thing we learned. Uh, The second thing we definitely learned was, you know, how you built a family. Um, then eventually came about, you know, the eventual aspect of going abroad and, uh, working as a laborer in, in the Gulf or Malaysia, um, all of the countries where Nepal supplies a lot of labor. So, um, the, the, the most vivid memory I have, uh, of me, my mom in, in our house would be, so we didn't have enough food to eat. And uh we never ate white rice, um, and this is something i i um I've not told a lot, but we used to eat a lot of corn rice, so milk corn um, that's that's what our staple diet was, and uh white rice was only when um you know guests came or once a year during the festive season, that's what we ate. Um, and the most vivid thing that I ever remember is um I used to wish that um, guests would come to my house often so that we could eat white rice um but um despite that being the most you know vivid one i would definitely say looking back now um despite we didn't not having a lot of food to eat i would say we were pretty well fed uh my mom ensured that you know the children were fed first and then she eventually took the brunt of not having enough to eat um we worked out as off, um, as a five-year-old, I would have to wake up, help, help in chores, but not really do a lot of farm work. Um, and then, you know, my mom would go out to collect wood, fodder. Uh, she would ensure that all animals are taken care of. And as a five, six-year-old, I would just go around helping out where I could. Um, the other things is, you know, one other vivid memory would be, whenever a plane passed by our skies, we would stop like it's, it's, it's something, it's supernatural, right? Right. Um, so everybody in the village, everybody around the villages would stop and look at the plane. Um, and, and the other things is, so all of my family, including my uncles, my aunt, um, I'd say not my aunt, but my uncles, my cousins, they all went uh, abroad to work as a laborer, would a cheap laborer in, in Dubai, Saudi, Malaysia. My father actually went off to um, Saudi, uh, and uh, interestingly, when they came back, they would come back with like you know, the big tapes, you know, the 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 radios, yeah, uh, the massive ones, yeah, yeah. You know, um, they would carry that with and come back with a lot of music, like lots of bags, sure. and uh, and I remember as a six-year-old thinking that's what I really wanted to do in life, which was go and make a lot of money and come back with the bags and the. And, uh, and the tape, um, and, um, sometimes, you know, as time evolved by people would bring TVs and all of that. Um, and, but things, things turned out to be sort of very different. Um, there were schools, but schools were not very close to home. Um, we had to make longer walks to get to the nearest school. Um, my, my walk was always an average of two and a half hours, um, uh, to the school and two and a half hours back. Um. And my mom uh, was the reason that I would have to attend a school. She should drag you by the. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that I, I I still now right. So I I was I was not a kid who loved education mm-hmm. growing up because I felt like my mom needed me at home, and mm-hmm. me going to school was not very fun because uh, it wasn't really fun because the teachers were not as uh, effective. They were not as fun. They were not. They didn't teach the way. You'd want to encourage a child to come to school, right? Sure. Um, we would be dragged to the school. I don't even remember anything that I studied back then, even as a seven-year-old, right? I don't remember my teachers that that much, but the most the thing that I always vividly thought of was my surrounding. My life was um, all about getting enough food on the table, helping out in the farm, ensuring that my mom was looked after. I mean, as as a kid, that's everything because she was everything to me, right? And so instead of going to school, I always wanted to be with her at home, supporting her as much as I could. Uh, Little did I know that she had a different plan, which is I had to go to school. So, um, yeah, two and a half hours every day. Um, That was her morning ritual. And my morning ritual was to not to get to school. Uh, So her ritual was to get get me to school. My my desire was not to get to the school. So uh, both of the clashes uh, led to quite a lot of drama along the way and so even today even even to date like you know my my uh, the villagers that fell along the path to the school remember me vividly which <laughs> is you were that kid who pulled your mom's hair because she <laughs> carried you on your on her shoulders to school that you didn't want to go and then they would remember how along the way during the rainy season i would be dragged through the mud <laughs> uh, and and all of that so um, you know that's that's Probably my village. Um, and uh, I think I was very... Um, I wouldn't say I was very innovative back back then, but I was, I was filled with a lot of ideas. I, I loved opening up the radios. So my mom would... My mom had uh, two to three radios and, and my job was to open it up and try to understand it as much as I could. Not that I understood it. I just opened it up and didn't know how to put it back on. Um, and so as a curious kid, I would uh, look to uh, see possibilities to build um you know for example play playing stuff we were not provided with any sort of uh you know um, toys um our toys were all you know either mud mud made a mud or you you played in the trees um and i remember we close to my home like five minutes away from my home uh there used to be this big bush and uh, me and my friends would go in and go in there and act like the thing flying above was the thing we were sitting on. And so we would make a lot of noise. Um, We'd make slides out of wood. um, And um, I was pretty economical. So my mom would send me to cut grass for the goats and the cows. Not a lot of times, but whenever she couldn't, she would send me. And, uh, you know, uh, being the kid, I was, uh, I I used to have this uh, plank of wood that was very, very, uh, well designed, and uh, you know, it acted like a slide that would go from. So we lived in a hill, so that means that from the top you could go sliding all the way down. And so, whenever my mom sent me out to, you know, get grass yeah. or any sort of uh, feed for the animals, I would make sure my friends did it for me in return for the trip on the on the toy. Yeah. Right. So, uh, th- those those uh, you know. <laughs> Honestly, I think, I think that was that from an early age, I realized that my mom worked too hard and uh, she needed a lot of support. And, um, but little did I know that I wouldn't necessarily be with her throughout my ages growing up. Yeah, Let's expand
0: on that. You mentioned how your mom had other plans for you. You spoke about how she should drag you through, take you to school every day. She tricked you on the promise of 15 cents to go give an exam hours away. That ultimately got you a scholarship that made you move out of your village and go to Kathmandu, right? Once you finished that course, you landed a scholarship at the United World Schools in Venezuela. When you finished that, you landed a scholarship at College of the Atlantic in Maine. When you finished that, you landed a scholarship at Schwarzman Scholars. This one yep. action by your mother started this chain of events, this butterfly effect that led you on this path. Do you think about this parallel life that you have skipped often, which is this life that many, Nepali young men can only think of and not dream beyond the life you spoke about. How the you can only think about moving to Qatar, Dubai, Saudi. Do you think about that life? What What would your life have looked like if your mother hadn't taken this decision, and if you hadn't met the right people and had the right opportunities along the
1: way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, phew, no brainer, right? Uh, I've I've got my own cousins my age as well as younger than me, and um, just the fact that. Their life today is drastically very different to mine yeah. because they've got limited opportunities than I have yeah. is already a reflection of what i a reflection of the bullet I missed that's yeah. what I would say um as a six year old if you asked me what I wanted to do, I would say I wanted to be one of my uncles who went to so one of my closest uncles he went to saudi he worked at Aramco mm-hmm. which is the oil company yeah. I definitely say and 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 he did he did make a decent amount of money. But uh, at what cost is the question, right? Um, at a cost of opportunities that he could have gotten somewhere else, at a cost of, you know, his family, which he didn't get to see much at the prime age of his life, uh, at a cost of seeing his children every four or five years. Um, and that's what my cousins are doing, right? And, and I, don't, I don't blame them, but I think on, on my part, I'm very appreciative of the fact that I've been very lucky. My life trajectory would have been of the one that, you know, I would have been married off at 16, um, 100%. Had I not gotten a good education, my life would have been that I didn't go to school by a certain age because schooling didn't make sense. Because everybody, whether you went to a school or not, ended up in Qatar anyways. Or you had to be the few, very few lucky ones that made it out of those schools. Um, and I definitely would have wouldn't have been the lucky ones because... As 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 I look back, I hated going to sc- going to the school that I, I used to go to as a kid. So um, fast forward, you know, changes in dreams happened because I started getting to ac- getting access to education. That honestly, saying, you know, may, let me imagine um, being, you know, there, there's this saying called if you are if you are surrounded by or if you are in a house, a, a four by four house, and you live there forever the only world you're going to see is the four by four walls, right? Anything outside is, it is going to take your effort. It's going to take you to go out of it, see the world and think of possibilities. For me, um, my possibilities being in the village was the farthest that my uncles had ever gone to. And that was, they got married at 16. Um, They would get their visas by 16, 17, go out to Saudi, earn some money, uh, and come back and in their first return they would have the first child and then subsequently three to four children right now that cycle would continue on because the eldest of the family the possibilities the eldest saw would be that most of his children would end up working in qatar saudi to make a living which is honestly saying I and mean, decent enough than working as a you know subsistence farmer in my village it's much better than that. But at what cost is going to be the other questions? So I did definitely dodge a bullet, which was uh, that I, I am fortunate enough not to be uh, one of the many stories uh, that built the Lusail Stadium or one of the many people that stayed back in Qatar and made the 2022 World Cup happen. Uh, you know, that I, I went there. I was very lucky enough to go and watch a football match. But um, my cousins who worked in Qatar uh, didn't have the privilege. And so um, I think with with the plans that my mom put forward, um, a lot of things, a parallel story continued on. Yeah. And throughout the journey, uh, there were people that believed in the story that was being created, a story that was being written. Um, and, uh, you know, at any time, once I left my village, did I not imagine of a life away from poverty into prosperity, which was that it was not about the amount of money I earned. It was, a, it was the amount of lives I impacted or the life I gave, it, gave to my mom, uh, my sister, and, and the family that I would have. And that would be a life filled with, you know, lots of opportunities. And the only biggest impact that I could ever have thought of going on into leaving my village and going on to, into a good school was, you know, what did I, what did I leave behind? And what was I getting? Those were questions that always, always, always hit my, hit my head. Um, because I was leaving behind a whole lot of friends whose future wouldn't, w- could possibly be like mine, but wouldn't be because there weren't many opportunities. And what is it that I was getting was a life filled with more opportunities because one led to the other.
0: You spoke about this bullet that you dodged. Do you think about the fact why you... Are you are you supposed to be here, Surya? Because so many people who have your upbringing, they don't make it out. We just spoke about that. Do you ever get the feeling why you like why were you the one who made it out? Is that a question you think about? Why are you the chosen one?
1: Oh no, absolutely. This is this is like a, a daily question, right. an existential <laughs> question, right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I I definitely was at the right place at the right time to make it out but there were also others that were there at the right place at the right time. But the question is always, why me? Well, it didn't really strike me until I finished United world college and then returned back to Nepal. Um, that was when I was like 16, 17, I think. And, uh, the, the, in, the interesting thing is my mom was uh, super proud of the life I had made for myself, which is at 16, 17, I had already left Nepal, gone to Venezuela, studied for two years, returned back to Nepal and yes the stories were being told differently but when my mom told it like you i'm proud of you because you made it out there were so many that could that didn't get that opportunity right and and i think that hit me very differently which was i got it because others didn't get it right it was not because i i did i probably deserved it in the moment but I took it and I got it because others didn't get it. So basically it was a, it it was one off chance that I fortunately happened to have received. And, and I think, and that's, that's, that's the time I sort of started asking myself and telling myself what have the ones that didn't get it, what has their life looked like? And so whenever I refer to, I've missed, you know, there's a, there's an opportunity that, I missed in order to get another opportunity, mm-hmm. which was in, in many contrasts, it was much better. But when I looked back and I went and met a few friends of mine, uh, a few colleagues of mine, I sort of realized their life w- didn't, didn't move that far. The bandwagon stopped at some point. Yeah. Um, it was the same old story that was being written, which was um, most of my friends went off to work in some foreign country as a cheap laborer or some sort of employee and then made a living out there, which is not bad, but in many cases, I think they, their life would have been very different had they also taken or given, been given an opportunity like mine. And so that's, that's probably in 2015, that's when it really hit me. Uh, 2014, 15 is when it's really hit me very hard.
0: When you look back on your childhood, we just spoke about the challenges that you have faced. Is there any part of your childhood that you regret? <laughs>
1: um. I regret not having, uh, um, a father to figure sometimes. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to be a regret on my end, but maybe, you know, sometimes I, I just blame myself that I was not, you know, maybe the, maybe not the kid that the family ever wanted. Um, rumors of being the center of attraction that I'm not one of their, uh, doesn't make it very easy for for the family i think I, I also regret in the fact that i left very early on when my mom needed me the most right there's the there's the there's the story that i went on to make make a living for myself but there's also the story of my mom's struggle where she didn't have a, a male figure to really support her throughout the chores through the work that was being done at home um you know, maybe maybe things would sort have of turned different. Maybe I wouldn't have been here, but could I have been a different... Could could the family have had different stories? Um, I mean, we've caught up on the number of misses we've done. Uh, my mom, myself, um, you know, my, my wife and everybody, we've caught up. But I wouldn't necessarily say um, my mom lived the best years when she needed to. And so... You know, not being present at times when she needed me the most. Maybe there were times that she didn't have enough cash. Maybe there were times where she could have had more support from the family. And I could have been that leaning shoulder. Um, But um, those are stories that hunt by my brother's uh, demise. I could probably have been there for her. I wasn't there. I was a kid, but I think I could have been there for her uh could i have done something more than just you know feel it in in me um but again i i definitely have my own reasoning of i couldn't have done anything in in those days despite you know me working hard and ensuring that we could possibly have something better in in another uh, you know another year or another day
0: yeah, yeah. it's interesting because it's undeniable that the childhood that you had and the difficulties and challenges that you face made you the person that you are today we've covered that aspect i find it interesting because what you're trying to do with your work and of course we'll expand on that a bit more you're trying to ensure that children today don't face the same type of difficulties that you face that they have much better access to education and opportunities that is the path that you are on And the reason I say that's interesting is because there's this common phrase which says that hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. Is this something you think about often that, and let me just clarify that we're not trying to romanticize struggle, childhood challenges at all. In an ideal world, nobody should have a tough childhood. But is this a question in your mind that if children today have much easier access to education and opportunities, they might not have the same type of drive and motivation that you had in your life and they might take it for granted. It might be much mm-hmm. easier for them.
1: Um, now that you tell me, I probably i am I'm, I'm having that thought. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is where I start, right? Um, back then when I was getting this opportunity, had someone thought of uh, you know, the kind of, person I would be imagine of the kind of person I would be on uh, the village I would leave and never come back then I wouldn't be the person I am today right that person didn't go far enough to think he he probably was very positive the person who gave me the scholarship to come along the the people that have supported my journey throughout um, the scholarship to United World College the scholarship to College of the Atlantic Schwarzman yeah. Scholars I mean these people didn't think I wouldn't you know, I, I would possibly run away from life and create something else. They always thought I'm, I'm going to have a higher probability of this person delivering than not delivering. And so the investment was made. And I think this is where I say uh, today I've got around 13,000 children that I work with, yeah. right? And of that, maybe 4,000 will, you know, get out of poverty and the other ones will probably live a story, you know, that of past, of my, of my family, of my cousins going off to Dubai, Qatar, and making a living there, Mm -hmm. which is not bad. But uh, if you you thought of it, of the 4,000 that I said could possibly make, you know, out of poverty into prosperity, maybe only 100 will deliver on the commitment of ensuring that their families and their communities are looked after. Those are 100, right? 100 stories that made this world much better than we could ever imagine of. So I think it's all about the positive aspect of, of what we do. Um, but, um, I definitely agree that could it, could it negatively hamper, could, you know, access to opportunities, create more, more inequality, uh, could, could they not really answer the question of solving it? Right. Um, but what I'm, what I'm trying to create is a level playing field for everybody, right. For that person to uh, succeed um today access to primary education yes is universal but is it is the other question right because none of the children that we work with none of the villages that we work with in these rural areas have access to the kind of education that would allow them to have a level playing field with anybody in the country right so if you are of a, a you know if you are the son of a very very poor person in one of my villages or in Songkwasaba in the northern part, then the the likely chances of you actually going out and saying, I want to be a laborer that is educated, go fight for my labor rights is very low. So because you're going to drop out of primary education, not finish it, and then eventually you're going to be stuck with it. So my idea is that, um, you know, uh, tomorrow the world is changing at a pace where problems and struggles are going to be very different. In this day and age, the struggles of social media, the struggles of technology have to be understood by almost everybody. If 8 billion people knew the kind of new world that is being created and that they could thrive in it, then that's the world we want to create, where people are reasoning, informing, deciding, but together, collectively, in a level playing field. At the moment, there isn't a level playing field. The ones that are advancing are advancing really quickly. The ones that are being left behind are left behind. And so, um, you know, with my work and every single day, I, I do ask myself if we're doing the right thing. Uh, then I ask myself, you know, what's the right thing? Is it one of the right things? It is the right thing. And this is probably where, you know, my team... The people that I work with every day, the team, the, the whole system, we tell ourselves, you know, we're just a catalyst in this journey to ensure that people are not left behind. They have that access to a level playing field and access to an opportunity that creates this access to other opportunities yeah. and challenges will evolve, trust me. Today, as we, you know, we're sitting here, we can definitely imagine of the challenges that we're going to face over the next five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. The challenges will define the kind of person we're going to be in the next few decades. And those challenges will inform us to make informed, you know, make sure that we are doing it, making informed decisions. And it's the few that will change the course of this history. And that's always been the case. It's the very few people that change the course of history, that changed the course of any given country, any given company. You know, you imagine of the vision of a certain company. It's, yes, we think of the shareholders and we think of the people that have put the money in. But at the end of the day, if you actually go back and look at it, there were a few that struggled to create that company and that vision is everything that's driving it. It could evolve, but it stays on that path. So um, I'd I'd rather put it like I'm looking for the next 100 to 200 people that would change the course of the history that Nepal is continuing to drive itself on.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. I'm definitely butchering this quote, but it reminded me of this saying. I think it was a saying they used to use in war, where there's an army of 100 soldiers, 10 are warriors, and one is a leader. And I, I used to find that very beautiful. I'm sure I've butchered the quote anyway. You spoke a lot about the state of education at that point let's dive deeper into it and let's get more and more yeah. technical let's talk about your work what was the general state of education in nepal let's take a point 10 years back before yeah. you got involved yeah what was it like how many schools were there how many students used to get enrolled how many made it past grade yeah. eight what was the situation like
1: Whew. um so my journey into education started right after i returned back from uh, united world college so i'd finished that and uh, I worked with a bunch of friends to establish Nepal's first free private schools. Mm-hmm. Now, back then, my understanding of the problem was very naive, which I thought the government education system was really terrible. So let's create private education that delivers for everybody. Um, me being naive, I didn't realize private education didn't, you, you could, it couldn't be free, if that makes sense. Because yeah. the state wouldn't give you money to ensure that people were staying in school. So we created a model yeah. where, uh, you know, we would barter education for labor so if you had a child you would come to my school uh, but you would work two to three days a month in my farm school farm and the school farm income would support the school now um, the model as beautiful as it sounds on the outside as the size of number of students increase the size of the farm would have had to increase as well yeah and that's investment again so um as a 17 year old, understanding the state of education, which my understanding, again, repeating that everything private is great yeah. um, and, and that anything public is bad was very flawed. Um, and, um, you know, I worked in the, in the enterprise for three years with my co-founders and then we fell out, which normally happens with startups and up and coming companies. Mm-hmm. And so I bounced off. I decided that I would continue on a journey that's different. Um, I came to the U.S. I was studying on a scholarship uh, at College of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And uh, every day there was this, uh, you know, there was back then Facebook had just become a thing. Yeah. So going on Facebook, um, I sort of realized people were talking about so many problems in Nepal. People were talking about problems of roads, problems of, because we were, we were just a, a, a sort of a young republic, a democratic mm-hmm. republic. And back, you know, everybody that we stayed or lived outside, studied outside, worked outside, uh, we used to see the country from far, and we thought contributing to problems in Nepal was talking about the problems. Yeah. And a- as I as I saw through it, people talked, uh, you know, wrote status about the state of drinking water, the state of transport, and whatnot. Yeah. And I, I I asked myself, um, and and I talked about education, and and I asked myself is why am I even talking about problems? That's when it really haunted me, which is, I don't think I'm, I'm the kind of person that would really talk about problems. I like decoding problems. I, and that's when I reflected back on my journey of building Nepal's first free private schools and asked myself, I really actually hadn't decoded the problem. Um, 10 years ago, if 100 children enrolled in grade one of any given school, uh, on an average, across the field, private and government, then there would only be around 18 people that would stay on to survive beyond grade eight. That's the number we're really talking about. Um, You know, fast forward to 2016, 17, and even 2021. um, If 100 children are the same enrolled, there would be 38 that would remain on to go into secondary education. So we've actually doubled the number. But at what cost? What's the problem? Um, state education is sort of very failed. Uh, the government doesn't provide enough teachers. Not because it doesn't have the capacity to provide, but because the system in itself is pretty flawed to you know equally divide the number of teachers, select them and provide them. Those are two different stories, right? The investment in education is at around 13% of GDP which in many ways for a developing country should be at 20. You're not necessarily having to spend on defense. Considering you're a country that is landlocked, there's China and there's, there's India, you'd rather spend on, on education than on defense, right? But still defense stops education. When you need a country that would be prosperous, you want to be increasing investments in something that creates that prosperity, and also creates human resource and creates people that can actually imagine the prosperity, right? So 13% of GDP gets invested into education, should be 20%. But interestingly, of the 13%, majority goes to secondary education. Now that's a very big problem. If you thought of it, 62 have already left school, 38 remain. The 38 would have remained. And so the 38% receive majority of the investment to become better professionals. Now, going it would be contradictory to what I just said a while ago, which is I just want 100 people to, you know, create, become those leaders and everything. But what I'm also saying back then was I want to give equal opportunity for everybody to succeed. If we're really talking about free fair universal primary education then investment in free fair universal primary education should be the priority if imagine if you had 90 people go into secondary education now that would make sense to invest 90% of the education budget into secondary education this, the, the reason i say the problems are yes it starts at the root which is kindergarten 100 children enrol Grade eight, you've got 38 remaining, and they go on to secondary education. Investment wise, if you analyze the problem, looking at the primary space, primary education space, if you invested and put in a lot of money, you would get a higher return because there are more children. Now, you moved on to the secondary education, you put in a lot of money, a lot of money is delivering returns, but interestingly, if you flip the chart, it would be the 68%, sorry, the 62% actually support and sustain the whole of Nepal economy. They actually drive the 32% remittance industry, remittance, um, you know, that we have for us to sustain. So let's say they were still going to go to remittance. But now imagine where if these children were to go into secondary education, all of them have some sort of skill and then go to remittance, which is work in Saudi Dubai with some skills, then our remittance would increase, right? So the the benefits of actually putting people through primary into secondary and then letting secondary first for now thrive on its own as a higher return. So the problem is not only in children drop out, but also that the investment is very unequal. And so therefore doesn't allow for children to have an equal playing field. The other thing is the curriculum is outdated, right? We've been using a 1976 curriculum as far as I know. I could be completely wrong on this one, but 1976 curriculum. Dude, we're in the 21st century. For God's sake, like it doesn't take a lot of effort to realize that our landlocked country should be investing a lot into education and specifically in technology education because... You don't need to use land to create technology industries. Look at New Zealand. It's literally thrived on technology. Yes, it's not landlocked, but it's sea-locked. It's far away from everybody. And it's got similar contexts like us. We've been so focused on not considering education as a mainstream thing that our teachers are not updated the training they are provided is once a year, one day, and sometimes throughout the year, one two days, and they are expected to deliver the highest standard education. And so, therefore, the state education, which is where majority of the poor children attend, are not catered to. They are not provided the kind of education that most private schools would deliver to children that can afford. And so the level playing field is never going to be created if we don't make the right investments in primary education that's where we come in that's where i come in and say if we have enough models to showcase that investing in the space we are talking about and if we actually showcase people that actually go into secondary education and do better than what they would have done looking at control cases and implement cases, voila, we would encourage the government to encourage, you know, invest more. And honestly saying, when I talk about investments, there are, you know, a few things that have to be, that have to receive investment. Curriculum is something we can't really influence a lot because at the end of the day, it's set by the national government. I just wish the 38 people that control, when I say 38 people, 62 people leave primary education, 38 remain of the thirty-eight. Majority of them go on to lead the government and the country. They are the people deciding for the 62% that leave schools. They are the people that have the possibility of transforming education for everybody. Deciding on policies, deciding on budget, deciding on everything, right? Them having that investment in secondary education should oblige them to think properly morally and decide the right things. So investing in teachers, investing in... Right kind of infrastructure for children and women. It is important that teachers are looked after. What if you had the highest paid teachers in Nepal? What if teacher, teaching profession was one of the highest paid profession in Nepal instead of, I don't know, a civil servant, I don't know, maybe a military person. What if the teachers were, you know, they were badass respected, right? And what if teachers were provided any tools and every tools and resources they were asked for, they would ask for in order to deliver on the commitment to education, right? These are all what if questions, but these are questions that could literally be answered overnight, and just it's just about allocating the right kind of people, right kind of resources into it.
0: Why do you think there is a much lower priority on education? Why do you think? Firstly, why do so many kids drop out of school by grade eight? Why is there such a low, why is such a low amount of the budget allocated to education as to defense? Why are teachers not paid enough? Have you thought about why it is that education doesn't receive that priority? Is there some cultural link to it? Is there some mindset or psychological link to it? Why is it that people don't place any importance on education?
1: Um, uh, 10 years ago, my answer would be very different. Uh, ten years on i'm I'm completely you know in in a uh, slight bigger understanding of why things happen the way they happen. Um, the interesting thing here is children drop out of primary schools in rural areas or state schools because the system is not uh friendly it's not very friendly to these children. so imagine of this: you are in one of the most rural areas of Nepal in Humla, which is the western part of Nepal. And uh, you, you're you from, you know, you've got one school in a village and the school, you know, teaches up to grade eight. Now, a, a typical day would be that your child would attend the school. Your expectation would be that the child would be learning. Yeah. But then the reverse happens, which is the teacher attendance is not regularized. It's not looked after. Um, teachers don't come to school. They come whenever they want and they don't come whenever they, you know, it's, it's just, I do what I want. Now, the accountability piece is not there. I don't blame it completely on the teachers, but when teachers come in, it's all about having the right infrastructure to teach as well. So these areas in Humbla would probably not have a fully functional, really nice school for children to be attracted to the school or the teachers to be feeling like this after 16 years of teaching, I feel like this is where I'm rejuvenated and I want to teach. Yeah. Right? So... You've got a whole breed of teachers that have been teaching since education sort of became a mainstream and you are because a permanent teacher, you want to retire to have your retirement salary, right? So your bonus and everything. If you don't retire, then you're not really secure after that. So the teachers forcefully stay in the job and the system is not supporting them to update themselves and encourage them. So students don't want, don't want to go to school because their teachers are not really child-friendly. The education is not fun. It is traditional. And the parents don't want to send these children to school because there is already this perception that the school is terrible. Uh, going to the school is waste of time. And that whether you go to the school or not, the likely destination is going to be Qatar, Dubai, Saudi anyways. So why waste time when you could have that person at home helping in the farm or doing other stuff, right? That's in the case of male. Now, In the female side though, it's that. Plus, you know, a female is considered to be a social security investment for somebody else, somebody else's family. Yeah. You know, in, in our culture, the female gets married off to a man and then she leaves the house that she was born in, right? Goes to her in-law's house, her husband's house, and that's, she, that's where she makes her family. So in rural areas, and in areas where children actually attend state schools, the perception of families is that, do I allocate my resources to my daughter whose life is now in after she turns 16, 17, 18, despite legal age being 20 to marry, these rural areas culturally associated, you can't necessarily prevent anyone from getting married at 16, 17. You could bring the police in, but that doesn't really solve. Culture takes a lot of effort to solve. And so I, th- I think this is, this is where it is. So girls are considered to be investment not worth making because the return on investment for you as the parent who gave birth is not as high because you don't necessarily get anything out of it. Now for the male, I want to educate my child, but I can't afford private education. I know if the child gets educated in private edu- private school, The opportunities are immense because they will not leave school. They'll support. The teachers are really supportive. Mm -hmm. If I send my child to a state school, now the teacher is not accountable. There aren't enough resources. I don't know when the teacher is going to come. And honestly, anyone in this village that ever attended that state school never made it out. So what's the guarantee that my child is going to be one of those pedigree child that would come out of the school? Very low. Very low. So male and female have two different stories to why they wouldn't go to a school from the family side and why a child would school leave a school is very simple. You know, um, there isn't a system of tracking in, these, in, in all of these primary schools in rural areas. There isn't really an accountable system of tracking whether or not the child is learning. So you go to a school, doesn't necessarily mean you're learning. Your understanding, or you're learning to ask questions. It just means you're going to a school. So your attendance is being recorded. You give an exam at the end of the, at the, you know, throughout the year. Now, the questions, the exams are all curated in a way that the child feels like is learning. Yeah. You perform good or bad, you still continue to climb up the ladder yeah. to the fifth grade. In the fifth grade is when the filtration happens. So fourth and fifth, you're really looking at children being, like you know, actually knowing that they haven't learned anything. And so that's where you start l- losing a lot of children. There's an interesting stat: twenty-five percent of children in grade four cannot identify double digits. That's that's grade four. One zero is ten. Right. The least that these schools can deliver on is ensuring that everybody is at least getting to a minimal understanding of reading, writing, and counting. That would change the landscape of education. That would change the morale of the students and that the parents would also feel like they're actually learning. So, um, And then I'll go into the second aspect, which is the policy is not very favorable for you know, the education to thrive because uh, there is a limbo of who is responsible for what in the country. And this has been happening for 20 years now. After, uh, you know, after the king got overthrown and then a new education concept was brought forward, we became a federal country with seven states and 760 some municipalities There was really a big confusion as to who's gonna look after education, which should have been the first thing they should have done, right? Education should have been the first answer. And still to date, there isn't really an updated version of the education policy. That means when there there isn't a guiding document, an updated version, what really happens is you're always outdated. So what do you get? You always get everything outdated. It's not like you're, you know, you can't expect you put in, in in general terms, it would be, if you put in rice to cook, you're going to get rice. You won't get that. Right? So if you're going to start changing this education landscape through the old system, you're not going to get new system or updated human resource. Right? That's that. And why education is a pri- isn't a is a priority? Well, um, I mean, infrastructure is the biggest priority for Nepal, which in many ways I definitely say should be because connectivity is critical to an overall development of a country like ours, mm-hmm. um, a country that is, you know, hilly, a country that is mountainous. I would definitely say an investment takes a lot of effort. Yeah. However, I've got my own viewpoints in that. Use technology, right? Now you don't need to do it the old way, which is what we're doing because that's where the money is. That's where you can leak money, right? So infrastructure is a bigger priority. Um, I definitely say priorities, uh, why isn't education a priority, right? Because defense, which is the nationalistic viewpoint against India and China is one of the reasons that defense gets a lot bigger priority. Now, what about the others? Health. I mean, it should also, it shouldn't be put on the back foot, right? The fact that it's also not prioritized, it's not even closer to education or even maybe even par, that says where the country's priorities are. So I think politically motivated for one reason. The second reason is um, not seeing the fruits of investing in education quickly, because when you think of it in five years tenure, that maybe a political party will be in leadership. You can only think that you're not going to see a doctor in five years. Right. You're not going to see like a, a, an engineer. You're not going to see like a, a primary education child go through primary education. So um, it's, it's not a priority um, in, in that case. Uh, but the other factors would be it really is, you know, there isn't a guiding framework to identify where the priorities in education are if you had a guiding framework to really go back and understand, where are we? Where do we want to get to? I think those things, if you started connecting, you would realize what kind of serious investment we would have to make to get the end, right? The reason I said 20% of the economy, uh, GDP should be allocated to education. All of the budget should be allocated to education is because if there is money, then at least there will be ideas that will come out. But if my take was it, I would really work on the education policy first, a whole framework, the curriculum. And then that's when I will identify the areas that I need to actually put money into. And subsequently, bam, go in the right investments.
0: Let's talk about a bit more. Firstly, thank you so much for painting the picture around this mindset that exists and this infinite loop that's being created. Mohamed Yunus, founder of the Grameen Bank, he had once said that my greatest challenge has been to change the mindset of people. Mindsets play strange tricks on us. We see things the way our minds have instructed our eyes to see. Yep. In previous interviews, you have spoken openly about the path of the expectation that's set forward for any Nepali man. You've mentioned that today as mm-hmm. well. They expect it to be doctors or engineers, and then there's a future for them in Qatar or Saudi or Dubai. You've also mentioned that at any point in your own journey, whether at Venezuela, whether in Maine, whether at if you had come back home empty-handed, you would have been viewed as a failure. And you have mentioned that the Nepali culture doesn't celebrate failure. I want to tie this in with everything you just spoke about, the mindset that people have around education as well. Have you found it difficult to change the perspective of people? Have you found a psychological barrier to change the mindset of people in the work that you're doing? Was it hard for you to convince people to get on board or did you find that people were immediately on board with the idea, and there was a path of least resistance for you?
1: Um, I think the the final part is what I expected. Right. When I <laughs> when I when I when I jumped on this journey, um, yeah. you know, um, twenty fifteen, when I returned back to Nepal, and and I wanted to embark on this journey, and I was like very pumped up. Um, I thought people would embrace me very easily they'd be like oh he's here he's one of ours he wants to do such a good thing to uh to to us to our kids Uh, it would have you know i i I was like why wouldn't you right um yeah i was i was wrong i was i was very wrong um that's when i asked myself why the hell did i come back to this country i I had uh, an opportunity to continue in a private enterprise in the US and I decided against it and said, I will change the landscape of primary education in Nepal with support from the beneficiary people. Um, Going back um, as a recent undergraduate graduate, I was literally asked to question everything I believed. Um, And honestly, I think, you know, after nine months of continuous struggle in the villages that I was trying to work with, I sort of realized why they were the way they were. So when I, just to give you a story, first school I went to build, I was pumped up. I told the community, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. This is going to bring this change, that change. Yeah. Um, the community in the outset definitely said, yay, we're excited. Then when it came to the day of actually doing the job, which is our model is built on a collaborator, collaboration. So I don't, I don't go in and do all the investments. I don't go in and build it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something I was very adamant on. This first school um, taught me, Because they say, yay, yes, we'll support you, doesn't necessarily mean they support you. Uh, It's a very big cultural uh, thing um, that is connected to trust. Um, And back then, I, I studied a politician who had never done anything in the village. In the whole district, he had never done anything. So he'd been a member of parliament for that district continuously in the past two, 10 years. And the highway that led up to the village during the rainy season would be non-existent. We would have to go on tractors to actually get to the village because they were four by four. Despite that, the village continued to vote for this MP. And me, who's coming in and saying, I actually want to work with you to build a school for your children, for this community they were not really very serious about it. They didn't necessarily trust that I would be delivering. Yeah. I was very offended in the first instance. I was like, I lived a whole life and I came to you. You should be working with me. Yeah. Um, no, it really, I, and that was my village, by the way. Like literally, I, I would say my village because it's really very close to where I was born. I thought they would own me. They would be like, we're proud of this dude. Now, um, here's the politics of it. Um, My family had seen me returning back to Nepal as a failure. Because anybody in the U.S., Nepali, that would return back would be mad to return back to Nepal. People go head over heels to get their visas and come to the U.S., Whereas here was me. It's basically like, nah. I'm not, I'm, I know US is great, brilliant, but Nepal needs me and I think I can do something great there and I want to go back. Damn, my family literally, um, and, and here's the thing, in, in social context like Nepal, your family either tends to make you or break you. In my case, it would be, sort of moving towards breaking me. Um, returning back, uh, not my mom, but like my greater family, right? Returning back, they basically were like, I failed in the US and the US kicked me out. And, and then I returned back and I tried to show off that I could do stuff. Uh, and that's the story that was circulated to the villagers, mm-hmm. right? The fact that, you know, they shouldn't trust me because I was an outsider was already being floated. And I was an outsider. I didn't live and breathe their ideas, their ideals, their lifestyle. If I, Back then when I was a kid, I did. But having had that gap of approximately 16 years at 22, I mean, I was no longer living and breathing their dreams. I was merely an outsider thinking of what we could accomplish together. I had to spend time understanding these people, understanding my roots. And so that particular school that I wanted to build took me 11 months to get started. And coming from a U.S. education background, where I had promised to my first supporter that I would build the school in four months Mm -hmm. and enroll 200 children, I was literally in my 11th month and I hadn't started. Now... The accountability piece on my donor side was I was communicating constantly but my own frustration of coming from an education background, being educated abroad, I was taught that if the bandwagon didn't move and you tried enough, then you should abandon the idea and move on to a newer idea. For some reason, something didn't really move. Let let me move on. I knew I could get get the trust that they were not having in me. So I spent my last 5 months of the 11 months living in the village literally going from door to door scouting land to build the school and in my 11th month, I got everybody together and I said uh, listen um, I'm here, this is us um, nothing has happened so far your children have lost one year worth of life they could literally be having a greater life it's Either we do it or we don't do it. And if we're not doing it, I need to pack my bags and leave. I sort of understood that I had gained their trust and I had understood them enough to tell that. And that's where they came on board with me. And I had approximately, I mean, I had everybody on board. And the school took me three months to build, right? So it was right on spot, but it was all about spending that time with them to understand the culture, the setting, the kind of mindset they had, the fact that these people had never been to school—that's where I had to start. I went to school, and I could tell my ideas. I didn't think that when I went back, I had expected that they would just understand me instantly, which which never is the case. Because if you thought of it, you know, um, if you—and—and and this is what I've had the most humbling experiences have been. Looking through somebody else's perspective. I went in there thinking I was a savior, but I was literally told, you know, they were telling me, we can't really trust you. And they were telling that very politician that had never done anything that we can actually trust you because he was there when they needed him the most, is actually physically present. Not really doing much, but physically present. The promises he made were false. They did know that. But that sense of security coming from an illiterate background, from a literate person, he could literally make that happen. Right? At times when there are problems, he would try to make a phone call and solve the issues. And that's how he gained the trust. Now, in my own case, I wasn't I was an outsider. I didn't have a proven track of working with them. I didn't have a proven track of being one of theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also had a family or in general, people talking about me thinking I was a failure. So it all added to my negative sense. Um, it does take a lot of effort, but uh, once you've gained one, one community trust, yeah. you can be assured that the rest of the district and the country is going to be behind you. It's just that first legwork that really takes the effort. And if you really mean good for them, you don't tell them it's good for you. It's good for us is where you start. It's about the us part. And honestly, I don't think it's been a very smooth ride despite having gained that amazing trust from the communities. If you think of it, the government is in its government is its, is its own group that have vested interests from political parties. The communities can easily be manipulated. And so uh, the complex environment. Um, that South Asia and specifically Nepal, India, they work in from caste system to class system to poli- polit- political party to religious ideology to whatnot, right? These are the spaces that one person wanting to do, establish different, implement different ideas has to go through. Right, And um, I think for me, at least in the recent times, uh, there's a bigger backing from all the communities we work with so we work with approximately 200 and some communities and so tomorrow if there's an issue in in any sort of you know the organizational terms or if there are if there's hindrance from the government then i am assured and i have the trust and the backing of these communities that they will actually stand up for me yeah right and so it took time to gain that trust it took time to bring them on board that we can actually transform education and that it is in collaboration with government, but it doesn't have to be led by the government. Like that took time. And winning the government on board, like that's another, another, another round of um, challenge because uh, as an outsider being educated in the US, going back, thinking my thought process would be the way to lead the country was wrong. I, I, I had to contextualize. I had to understand how the government worked Um, I spent seven months going to one office that approved, you know, charities to work in Nepal. So I had, I was, I was hoping to bring money from the US, the UK. And in order to get that approval, I had, I had to go to this thing called social welfare council, seven months, every single day I went and I was frustrated going to it, but I went like it was a religious thing every day, right? And that's where I learned to pull strings, you know, find the right people. Understand that system in Nepal is very different than systems in the West or systems in countries where you have a larger literate population. So that the decision makers were already in a position of power And in order to work with me, they had to realize and I had to know that they were in position of power and that I was coming to work with them, but under their guidance. So it was not like, yeah, sure, I was educated in the West. Maybe I knew more of economics. Maybe I knew of business. Maybe I knew what kind of education we wanted. But one thing these government officials made me realize was I can know all the things in the world and I can be the expert of everything but I'm not the decision maker. And so this is where I put on a collaborative hat. And yeah, seven months on, uh, realized that you know, I was going to collaborate and not you know, lead it on my own and be an arrogant person. So my whole um, experience of bringing the community together, the government, trying to build up this trust really broke me down. It broke me into pieces, but it took time for me to put myself up. Patience, perseverance, and definitely living to understand what these people actually feel and understand is critical to gaining that trust. And even to date, the likely chance of the trust being broken and them not having trust on me is higher than them looking back and thinking, he actually did a great job, right? If that makes sense. So it is not how far you've come in the journey. It's where are you in the present? And the likely chance of all of these things falling apart is higher because a literal population can decide on his own. A literate population can decide on her own and process information and bring out a collective narrative. But in a country like mine where rural areas politics is in the roots of the families, in the communities, and then politics is easily manipulative, educated population is very rare, young population is not there, the likely chance that these people will not decide on their own is higher. And so that collective relationship we continue to have, my relationship with all the communities has to be kept and has to be sane and has to be updated and maintained in order for this journey of complete transformation in education to happen. Even to date, I can completely say it could fall apart anytime. Right.
0: I must thank you for sharing that very comprehensive overview of the journey that you've taken. I think any person who's trying to emulate your path in another country can learn a lot of lessons from the journey you've taken, building the first school or the type of strategies, the communication styles that they have to emulate in the villages or with stakeholders, there's so much to learn from your journey, so I must thank you for sharing that before we move into our final closing questions. I would love it if you can interpret what masterpieces I've built with the Lego. what do you think
1: I'm, a, I'm like so this 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 is one of the one of the projects we're doing currently with with the right. Lego foundation <laughs> and uh, its it's called learning through play right. um and I went into one of one of my schools um yeah. interesting thing is um when you ask children to imagine it, imagine, you know, what can you create with pieces? Um, the kind of thought process these people have is mind blowing, right? Children allowed to act, children allowed to bring out their creativity. Mm-hmm. Insane, right? Um, I definitely say you, know, you need some more creativity. <laughs> um, Tough crowd. Looks. <laughs> this looks like a, a giraffe. Could it be? Yeah. Definitely. That's like, look, what I was look, going look at the, for. Look at the hat. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Who knows? Dude, <laughs> after,
1: after I said giraffe, is what you said like that's where you... know this is probably a <laughs> chimney, a house, a, a factory. Um, yeah, no, this, it's this looks like a... shaped like a giraffe. This looks like a camera. A
0: camera? Could it be a camera? Yeah. One of those old ones. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. What about I mean, my final masterpiece? The trifecta.
1: Uh... This is, your, this is your up and coming house. Thinking of building a house, and probably this is it.
0: That's it. Exactly what I was aiming for. I was just saying a house it. House shaped yeah. like a giraffe, an old camera, <laughs> and my future house, and you got it. You spotted it right in. Wait, 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 <laughs> no,
1: this could be this could be this could be the this could be your current house that you're living in. Think of it. Yeah. Yeah, and then the house. It's all about ima- houses. This is your house you're imagining. <laughs> and this is probably gonna be cute little giraffe you're gonna have it in in your house
0: my pet giraffe yeah that's it bring it all together (laughs) this is the future of my life in lego you know 30 years later someone's gonna look back in this episode and be like oh he predicted it exactly look at him living in this house with the giraffe i I
1: I tell you i tell you the savannas
0: (laughs) that's my future
1: oh absolutely yeah
0: forget the tarot cards forget the crystal ball it's the lego where the future is at fantastic Let's move into some of our closing questions. What are some books, movies, role models that have strongly influenced you
1: in your life? I think um, for me, my support system has always been very critical in the journey I've taken. Um, people that have you know inspired me have never been uh, people of names. Um, mm-hmm. They've always been my close friends, my you know the communities that I work with every day because. The interesting thing is these people have struggled. They have survived. Yeah. And they will survive even if we didn't do anything. The the fact that they will survive through the thick and thin of life is inspirational. Um and my mom lives very simple. Uh, she everyday her everyday food is talbat, right? Um, if you even go and eat pizza or hamburger, she'll still say, "Are we going to go and eat dalbat? <laughs> yeah. Um, living s- simply is is probably one of the th- one of those things that it continues to ground me. I I continue to keep myself apace because there are people you know that have had the most difficult times in their lives and come out of it, and people that have that I look up to are are some of my, you know, best friends that have kept me afloat during insane times and and times where I feel like I could quit. Um and and they've been there whenever whenever I need. They've been there at times where I feel like I'm totally lost, uh emotionally done and that I would want to quit the journey I was taking. And they would still say, um, you're not quitting the journey. You're continuing on that. Um I would say bookwise Capital in the 21st century inspires me in many ways. Yeah. yeah, sure, many people would think it's a shit book, but <laughs> um it 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 grounds us in, in in the fact that the reality that we live is a reality we created for ourselves that continues to and will continue to haunt us. And uh we are people that are continuously solving problems uh but at the same time uh looking at ways to create further problems and so the the gist of that book is probably where i am that's the most recent one i've read so i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say harry potter or i wouldn't say any other books um um but uh all in all going on this journey i've sort of realized in life you earn people um you you literally just earn people um and as a result of it, the byproduct happens to be the currency that most people make. Um no matter where you are, no matter in difficult times, if you're sick, if you're healthy, the the la- the last thing you always look for is someone to be with, um, be it your family, be it your friends. And so this this journey of um eight to ten years has uh, inspired me in ways where I don't look at um people of power to solve issues around the world. It's uh, people of, you know, groundedness, people that have a clearer understanding of these places, which are untouched, unheard of, but can have a better living where you can create an equal playing field. Um, It's just those very few hands-on people that can actually make the difference. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you do inspire me too, if that makes sense. Because I get to talk in the interview.
0: Oh, I'm glad I could make it to your prestigious <laughs> list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Martin Luther King had once said that I have a dream. And he had painted a beautiful picture for the future of America. So I have to ask you about your dream. What is your vision for the future of Nepal 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now? What dream do you dream
1: for Nepal? Um, when I started on this journey, um, dreams were massive. Um, you know, like, like I said, 2015 first school, um, my dreams were that by 2020 to 2023, I would have 200 schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, got close to it hundred and fourteen hundred and twenty for short but the journey continues on um so um for nepal it wouldn't be a very lofty dream um the only thing i'd expect that over the next 20 years um happens is people from around the world um consider nepal to be a destination for education be it primary or secondary or tertiary anything and that um the sacred beauty that Nepal has continues to be preserved with people that appreciate it, know how to make decisions. And that, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we've got a whole cabinet of ministers and, you know, politicians that are literate that actually know what they're doing. Yeah. I do not want my finance minister uh, to be some sort of politicians who fought in one of the freedom protests.
0: Right.
1: The finance needs to be led by someone who knows finance. Yeah. I, so I'd, I'd want my prime minister to at least be cognizant and understanding of the possibilities that my country has uh, in the next 10 years. I'm hopeful that the 13 to 20,000 children that will have gone through the schools that we built will become informed um, and uh, proactive voters. And maybe we'll have a prime minister from them. You never know. The hope is someday these children look back and say they were people that trusted in our ability to deliver on the dreams of our communities, the hopes of my family, my people, to ensure that we were living out of poverty And today, here I am to create prosperity. And that's what I want to hear, hopefully, uh, in the next 10 years. If the country doesn't get empty, which is another problem for another day. But um, right now, there's hope. And I'd want the hope to continue on. Right now, you know, there's a sense of accomplishment for us, at least, with support from people around the world. That believe in the work that you know me, my team, my team have been doing. Um, we definitely say the dream of seeing a prosperous Nepal isn't that far. The question is how quickly will that happen? But it will definitely happen, and uh, you know, hopefully, next five ten years sees educated politicians coming forward to lead the country. You never know who that is gonna be. Maybe that's gonna be one of you know, my children from the schools that they've gone to and eventually gone into politics. Yeah. Or maybe they're just gonna go abroad and have a living that they'd never imagined of. So in just it would be an imaginative Nepal, a, a dreamy Nepal and a hopeful Nepal and a country filled with possibilities for everybody. That's what I'll definitely think. I hope that dream
0: is not far. Let's bring it back to you now. You once asked your uncle, what would you like to see me do? And your uncle said, do something that satisfies you, but also look beyond yourself. In that spirit, what would you like your legacy to be? Oh.
1: I I want people to remember me for the the humbling journey that I'm taking. And uh, the only thing I'd say is, you know, taking journeys like these might not be every person's cup of tea, but uh, go see the world. Understand your current neighborhood might have an issue. Get connected to it. And uh, I, I want to leave behind um, communities that are thriving uh, where, you know, someone living my past does not have to be living that past in the current century. A past filled with uncertainty doesn't have to be the case for everyone. And could we do much better? Could we invest slightly more dollars? Yes. So my legacy would be the mobilization of funds to ensure that a humbling journey is taken on that children are not left behind and that children that didn't have certainties when they grew up have a very certain future of making it out of poverty.
0: When do you stop? When do you think it's enough? Because if you ask me, your story is already a singularity. We just spoke about how children who come from where you come from, who were given the hand that life dealt them, were not supposed to make it out. And you were that one. We spoke about that earlier as well. At what point you just kick back and say, I've done everything I could and I've made that massive quantum leap that I was supposed to make. And anything I scale up from here will be an achievement for sure, but this was the big journey. When do you stop? What is in your future?
1: At, at 15,000 children, I definitely want to go back and reflect. Okay. Yeah. And, and that, that just means my journey will now at 15,000 either evolve or that it will take a faster pace. And uh, it needs to evolve into something larger. Um, and that larger could be anything from policymaking to you know, policy influencing, so name it. But at 15,000 children, currently at 13, so I'm gonna go back and reflect on it. That'd be another two to three years. So Maybe even fun. two years,
0: yeah. Start planning.
1: I no, said. absolutely. <laughs> on it on it for sure yeah
0: you spoke about these children who who might make it to the government who might take up these positions who are now educated what about you have you personally sought those positions is that something that interests you yeah would you want to be the person who actually brings in the change
1: um i think uh, over over time so I, one thing i've reflected on is my my children's Dreams. So the, the 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 children that go to my skill, school, school, uh, their dreams change every other day. Uh, I've had like, I've had uh, teachers and, and students tell me these stories where um, one morning, I think the first child that I ever interacted with, as a result of which this whole process, the United World Schools movement started in Nepal. Um, the the first child I interacted with, he had actually told me that uh, he wanted to become a teacher. Mm-hmm. Then uh, subsequently in two, three days, you know the possibilities shown by some of the people that from our team ensured that he tried to look into, he wanted to become an engineer now. Yeah. So that was in three days, yeah. right? <laughs> so now imagine like these 13,000 children, their dreams have evolved over time. Yeah. When I started this journey, my hopes were that I would bring political transformation in my country through education because at the end of the day politics sort of is at the crust of deciding what gets allocated, where, how it gets allocated, who writes what and everything. My thought was if you had informed voters you would have informed politicians. It didn't work like that. And I think it will work that way soon. My hope is that I continue to support leaders that will lead the country forward. Um, At the moment, I, you know, the country is in a very big change, process of political change. Um, There are newer, younger, uh, you know, political parties with progressive thought process and dreams that are coming forward. In my own case, it would be that I am uh, being asked in many different cases to support with policymaking and education, um, sit on different committees, help with the ministry and many different other, other, other facets. Um, they've been interesting. They've really given me that outlook into how things get done and how slow things are. And so as I get to the 15,000 mark I've asked myself if I am willing to take on the pace of a slow change which is at the moment I've got things under control that I'm able to with support of donors and well-wishers build schools and run them and work with 13,000 children the moment I change my trajectory the pace becomes different, the learning becomes different. And so understanding when the right time is going to be is one thing that I've always been asking myself. So referring back to my support system, asking them if it's the right time to move into a new space and see if they actually agree, disagree with my own pace of thought. So um, maybe in the next five years, you never know, we'll find, we'll find great leaders coming out and maybe i I might not be one of them, but definitely going to be supporting the ones that actually come out and, and, and that I happen to be a catalyst in that particular movement.
0: There is a probability that you might be one of those leaders. <laughs> <laughs> and in the previous interview, you spoke about how your perception of the politician has changed over time, of the neta yep. has changed over time. Do you think about the psychology of power? often and about seeking leadership there's this very popular phrase which says that those who are best suited for leadership are the ones who don't seek it are the ones who often thrust upon it there's also a phrase about power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely is this something you fear and is that one of the reasons why you're slightly hesitant to say maybe you'll reflect back when you reach that goal that you have so many stories in history about people who had the right moral compass who had the right ideas very idealistic And when they reached the position of power, something changed and the moral compass got skewed and suddenly they were not the same idealistic person at all. And power corrupted them. Is this something you fear for yourself as well?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to think, uh, you could take an example of Obama, right? Could be, could be an example. Um, he started with big lofty goals, wanted to get accomplished. He wanted to accomplish quite a lot. Um, so these were dreams that were either fulfilled, or unfulfilled, some trusts that were broken. And looking at my own politicians, so both of them are in the similar spectrum. Um, mine promise and do the same promises every year and my people fall for it every year. <laughs> um, on the other hand, you know, if you looked at how people decided post-Obama, you would see a lot of frustration come out. Um, the question is always going to be, could Obama have done more? Because mm-hmm. uh, he was the most powerful person in the world. Um, that's probably where I understand it's slightly different. If he had it, he probably would have. I think the understanding that we have to make is uh, in systems of democracies, there are places and institutions that sometimes hinder the kind of solutions accomplishments you want to make in this part of the world it would be you know there are institutions that you have to work as a as the lead of the country to ensure that you are actually implementing solutions and getting things done not everything's get everything gets done in my part of the world um, you have the choice to do it and you still don't do it so those are two dichotomies um for me, power was never the driving force behind thinking of you know, politics or thinking of you know, change through political wielding. Um, the only thing that drove me was, at the end of the day, you need to create systems that were efficient, uh, systems that delivered. But if you are the one imagining it, and the ones that are implementing currently cannot imagine of it, then it's time that you bring that imagination onto the floor so that it can take its time to change, get implemented. And as a person, when I, when, when I started this journey, I, and I had told this to my mentor, uh, Jay Friedlander, I, I told him, He said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to problem solve. Um, The reason I said I wanted to problem solve was you're not the first person who's seeing the problem. You'll probably be the first person who's going to enact the solution. Right? It is not that the politicians are bad and nobody's seen it. It's just that nobody's taken the effort to mend it. So I'm, I'm driven by the fact that we can mend it, we can change the course of history and it can be changed for the better. It doesn't have to be one single person. It doesn't have to be me. I don't think I'm the best capable person alone in that journey. It has to be a group of people that can imagine that happen. I think similar is the case for Obama. Obama dreamt of something which he communicated to the mass. The mass trusted him but it's all about, do you have the right kind of people in the right places to support and push that forward? Yeah. His was maybe he didn't have the right kind of support. right? So my journey to whatever change that I want to make um, will only be taken, be it politics, be it leadership, be it being involved with government, will only be taken if I see that there are greater mass of people that can be mobilized. If there isn't a greater mass of people that can be mobilized, then it's just going to be another wasted opportunity. I might as well go back into private, private sector. So, you know, power is definitely going to, you know, it's, it's a corrupting factor. It yeah. makes, uh, and that's why politicians in South Asia or majority of the, part of the world, continue to vie for positions. It's driven by the sheer desire to stay noted, stay in public, stay relevant. And once that relevancy becomes the main factor, you don't see beyond your own self into the people that you want to lead. My roots come from the fact that I've, I want to be with these people. I want to make sure that their life is... Better than where they were at, and if I'm not the right person to do that, and I don't think I can lead it, I can't. I don't think I can be there. Then I shouldn't be even taking the step to be there because it's a waste of energy, waste of time, waste of a lot of stuff, resources, name it. So, um, if I feel like at any time in given future, I feel like I can be part of a team that actually needs change within the country, much faster, much at a greater pace than what it is today then joining a force is much uh, you know acquainted than not joining it so it's all it's all going to be what's what's going to happen tomorrow because in our part of the world things get decided overnight
0: well i'll keep my eye on the news final question what do you think is the meaning of life surya karki
1: meaning of life oh uh, meaning of life I told Meaning of life. Um, For me, it's been okay. So it's it's not. This is interesting. I read this somewhere, which is it's not how and whom you live with. It's when you die, how many people actually um, come to your funeral, something around that line. Um, I'd wanna, I'd wanna leave this place much better. For everybody to live, and that tomorrow when I'm, you know, as as my life comes to a culmination, I, I want to spend every, you know, as 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 I go forward from today and previously as well, it's been about the people that I've been with, it's been about the people that I've lived with, it's been about the people that have supported me, and so at, at the end of my life, I wanna I wanna tell myself that I'm I'm a billionaire people's person.
0: leave the world a better place, a beautiful meaning to have. Surya, thank you so much. If we want to connect with you online in person, find out more about your work, get involved, where can they do so?
1: Um, just check out on uwsglobal.net and um, we are we, present in the US, in the UK and around the world. Um, education is what will change this world to become a better place and what better... to be you know connected to than us Um, but uh, yeah that would be the best place and um, any questions that people want to ask talk um, my email would be surya at uwsglobal.net if not then Facebook would also be the place (laughs) But yeah,
0: that's the place to find you Surya thank you so much for a great conversation
1: thank you thank you for having me